and we are called to pattern our whole lives after the shape of the gospel. So in our passage this morning, for example, in Colossians 3.13, we are told that we are to forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven us. So you are to think about the gospel, how have I been forgiven? And that gospel forgiveness is to shape your life so that you become a forgiving person. In Ephesians 5 verse 2, the Apostle Paul says that we are to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. So once again, we are to think of how have we been loved in the gospel? And then we are allowed to allow that gospel-shaped love to shape the way we love. And when you see this in Scripture, you can't unsee it over and over again. Husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church. So the gospel is not just a message for unbelievers by which they're saved. It is a message for believers by which we live. This is actually the central message of Paul's letter to the Colossians. As he encourages the new believers in Colossae to press on to maturity, in chapter 2, verse 6, he says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him. That is the central message and the centerpiece of the letter to the Colossians. Paul says to this group of young Christians gathering together in this pagan city, he says, look, think of how you received Christ. Think of him. He's the one who loved you and gave himself for you. He's the one who had compassion on you. He came to you when you were so unlovely and he loved you. He had mercy on you. He forgave you. He welcomed you. Think of how you received Christ as Lord. And so walk in him. Live your life in a manner that reflects how you received him. Let the kindness and grace of Christ shape you so that you become a kind and gracious person. See that your character is shaped by Christ. And that is how you are to live in the world. That is what it means to mature as a Christian. We have said over and over again in this series that Paul is writing to encourage these young believers to press on to maturity. How are you to mature as a Christian? It is seeing that your character becomes steadily conformed to the character of Jesus Christ. Your character. And this section of the letter that we come to this morning, more than any other section in the letter, shows us how practically the truths of the gospel should shape our lives, our lives this week, as we go into our workplaces, as we spend time with our families and our friends. How are we to live in our pagan city? That is the question the Colossians would have been asking. 
A little church established in the middle of this very cosmopolitan city called Colossa, modern-day Western Turkey. In the surrounding culture, everyone's just making up their own morality, doing what they feel is right. And the question that young church would have been asking an apostle like Paul is, how are we to live as Christians? How are we to be distinctive? What are we to do? And how relevant are the questions they would have been asking to us today? Because these are all the questions we need to be asking. How are we to live now as Christians in a post-Christian Northern Ireland? where we are in our own city of Belfast, that today is saying we have finally thrown off the shackles of this religious stuff that has caused us so many problems down through the years. How are we to live as Christians in our city? And Paul instructs the Colossians in a way that is very simple. In our passage this morning, he says essentially three things. Number one, let the grace of Christ shape you into a gracious people. Number two, let the peace of Christ shape you into a peaceable people. And number three, let the word of Christ shape you into a wise people. Then in verse 17, right at the end there, he gives a wonderful summary statement that draws everything together. So that's our roadmap for this morning. If you want to be growing and maturing as a Christian, here's the kind of stuff you want to be working on and praying about with the help of the Lord. So let's look at this first main instruction Paul gives to the Colossians. How are we to live in our pagan city? Well, first, let the grace of Christ shape you into a gracious people. So far in this letter, Paul has explained that two things happen when one becomes a Christian. First, there's the old sinful self that is crucified with Christ. Your old selfish self that just lived for yourself and your own way, when you come to Christ, that old self is crucified with Christ. In 2.20, he said, with Christ you died to the old ways of the world. And the implications then, if you died with Christ, we saw this last week, you're to put off the old self. You're you're to try to fight against those old sinful habits of selfishness. We looked at how to do that last week. But the second thing that happened when you became a Christian that Paul has mentioned in this letter is you're raised to new life with Christ. So there's a death and a birth. There's the death of your old self, crucified with Christ, buried dead with Christ, and then raised up. There's this new life, new self, where you are renewed in the spirit of your mind. You're created, recreated to be like Christ. Paul has said this in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. He said, you're being made alive with Christ. And now in verses 12 to 17, in our passage, he shows how we're to live out this reality. And in verse 12, he says, in light of this, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. And he continues with a list of virtues. First in this verse, notice this little reminder of their new identity. Paul says you're chosen set apart, and loved by God. He wants to make sure the Colossians and us, we never forget that. 
You see, it's really important because if you start thinking that you've got to work for growth and maturity so that God will like you, you'll get the gospel completely wrong. You become a legalist. What you need to recognize, Paul says, is you've been chosen by God, set apart to live a holy life. You've been loved by God. Now, in light of that being who you are, go and actually live out of your new identity. Not to earn or gain God's favor, but but because this is who you are. This is who you've been called by God to be, a new person representing the character and culture of the kingdom of God right in the city where God has placed you. What are the characteristics that should be flowing out of this new identity? Well, Paul lists them in the rest of verse 12. He said, in light of who God has made you to be, you're to put on practice, compassion. You're to have compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Now, these are all character traits that are used in the New Testament to describe the Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus, in Mark's gospel, saw the crowds of needy people, we read that he had compassion on them, for they were like sheep without a shepherd. His incarnation, his coming, was a supreme act of kindness. As Paul writes to Titus, when the kindness and goodness of our Savior appeared, he saved us. In Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, Jesus said himself, I'm gentle and lowly in heart. Jesus was humble, meek, and patient. And we are those, if we are Christians, who have received this Christ. He dwells in us by the Holy Spirit. And now we're called to walk in Him. To seek to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. That is to practice the character of Christ in our day-to-day lives. Last week, when we looked at the fighting and putting sin to death passage, that side of our Christian growth, I encourage you to think about and to write a list of your five besetting sins, to think of some of the things that you really struggle with, where the old self continues to raise his or her head. And I ask you to pray about those things as part of your active fight against indwelling sin. Well, this week, I would encourage you actually to list those five virtues in our passage and get serious about praying them through asking God to grow you so that you would have a more compassionate heart. Do you ever feel like in life you're just so busy with your own stuff, you just don't have time hardly to be compassionate? We need strength from the Lord to be compassionate. Have you ever spent time praying and saying, Lord, please grow me so that I would become a compassionate person, to actually care about people? Maybe you could just write that and pray about it this week. Write those others, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. Start taking seriously the effort to grow in these areas. In verse 13 then, Paul continues to show how we live these characteristics out in the community of our local church. So if you want to think, how am I to live as a Christian in the church at Great Vic? Here's how you're to do that. Paul is so real here. It's so helpful. 
He says, strive to be a community where you bear with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, you're to be forgiving towards each other as the Lord has forgiven you. Now, you've probably heard that old saying, you can choose your friends, but you can't choose your family. It's just the same in the church. This call that the Apostle Paul gives to the Colossians acknowledges that every local church is made up of all kinds of people who at times can be very different to us. There are people in this church, as you look around, they speak differently than you, they think differently, they have different ideas, we all have differing levels of sensitivity. Someone could say something to one person, it would crush them, and they think they're getting at them. The other person, it would be like water off a duck's back. We all have different levels of sensitivity. We have different ways of putting things across. Some of us are very gentle. Some of us are like bull in a china shop. We all are different. And you can choose your friends, but you can't choose your church family. If you are in a local church, different people joining us, coming alongside, growing up, you don't get to choose just who you want, the people all like you that you get along with. you got to have a variety, and that's both the beauty and the challenge of the local church. And for the sake of maintaining the unity of the fellowship, we will sometimes have to put up with people with whom we would not normally choose to associate. I think there's something so real about that. You've got to at times just bear with one another. Just put up with those people that you struggle with. That's very real. Very realistic. You almost read that and go, oh, you're not supposed to say that about the church. Because we're all perfect Christians, aren't we? We all get along like a house on fire all the time. Of course not. And as you think of people who you might be putting up with, remember also, others also might be putting up with you. I think as we think about this, it's helpful to remember that unity in the local church does not mean uniformity. There's a helpful saying attributed to a German Lutheran theologian of the early 17th century, Rupertus Meldinius. He was the guy who said, in primary matters, we strive for unity. In secondary matters, we give liberty. And in all things, we practice love. I think that's really helpful. And all of this assumes that we understand the importance of relational harmony in the local church. We must take this very seriously. We do not want the church to be a place where there are big, broken relationships, family fallouts that everyone knows about but no one actually does anything about. We never want to be like that. But again, Paul is very real about how challenging this relational harmony and unity can be. Because he goes on to speak of if there are issues, if there are fallouts, if there are relational tensions and complaints, here's how we're to deal with them. Verse 13, if one has a complaint, forgiving one another, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. As a young parent, I often felt that one of my jobs was to try and model a perfect Christian life before my children. 
But sadly, uh, I soon realized that my sin shows up in family life in front of my children. It's an awful reality. You're trying to parent your kids. You're trying to be the perfect example, and you realize that you can't be a perfect example because you're still a sinner. <laughs> so what are you called to do in that moment when you get cross with your kids inappropriately or you, your sin comes out and your impatience comes out in the fact that they can't find one of the shoes and you're all in a rush to get out the door in the morning? What do you model? Apologies. Say, I'm sorry. You model forgiveness together as a family. You're real, that we're not going to all be perfect. At times, we're going to rub each other up the wrong way. At times, we're going to say things we regret or do things we regret. What do we do in that moment? Do we hold grudges? And do we practice bitterness and unforgiveness? No. We model that we're not perfect people, but we, that's the reason we have a Savior. We need to be saved from our sin. And so we come to Christ. But what do we do then? We model. When we offend each other, when we have complaints against each other, we, we try to put it right. If there are offenses and problems, sometimes we need to sit down and talk things through and just, just clear the air as we have a conversation where you sit down and say, I just need to talk to you about this. Other times, you need to just forgive without making a big deal about something. We are not the place in the church of Christ. We're not the place of grudges. We're not the place of fallouts. We're not the place of bitterness. Why? Because if, imagine if that's how God treated you. He said, I'll not forgive you. I will hold that grudge against you. I will not move towards you in love. You see, God in grace has moved towards us. He has forgiven us our sins. And so how can we then withhold forgiveness from one another? The gospel shapes our lives. Verse 14 then gives a lovely summary of what draws all these characteristics together. Above all of these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience all reach their full power only when they are unified and empowered by love. It's so simple, isn't it? But it's so important that we remember this. We're supposed to love each other. As a church family, we're supposed to love each other. It's so easy to forget that. And remember, that love isn't a superficial, cheap, flimsy Valentine's Day thing. That's a tenacious putting up with each other, forgiving one another, continuing to move towards one another. We will fail at times. We will let each other down at times. But once again, we're gracious because God has been gracious towards us. We're patient with each other because God has been patient towards us. We're forgiving towards each other because God has forgiven us. The gospel shapes our lives. In Ephesians 5.1, Paul writes to the Ephesians in a very similar way, and he says, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. So think of the way you've been loved by God. Think of all the ways God has moved towards you in grace, compassion, kindness, gentleness, and humility through the cross of Christ. And go out this week and put on Christ. Christ. <laughs> 
put on the gospel. Practice gospel-shaped character in your day-to-day life. Ask yourself this morning this question. How am I doing at being a gracious person? Would people look at my life over the past week, say they had a recording of everything, and they watched back through the whole week, would they say, if you were to give me one word to describe that person, gracious? I wonder, would would anyone conclude that of us? What would it look like for us this week to be more gracious? Think about that. Wouldn't it be such a wonderful thing to be more gracious and to reflect more fully the grace that we have received from the Lord? That is a place of human flourishing. So, the lion's share of the time in this passage has been spent on this first point because that's where we have uh, most uh, of the lion's share in the text. Let the grace of Christ shape you into a gracious people. How are you to live in your city? You're to be people who are shaped by the grace you have received, and you treat others with grace. But more quickly now then, let's look secondly at the second call of Paul to the Colossians. How are we to live in our city? Well, secondly, let the peace of Christ shape you into a peaceable people. In verse 15, Paul calls the Colossians to let the peace of Christ rule in their hearts. Over this next week, several contenders are going to step forward and try to be the principle that rules your heart. It could be anxiety over some relationship or a situation you're facing at work or with a family member. It could be your perfectionistic tendencies. It could be your desire to be well thought of by people continually. It could just be your self-centeredness. All of these contenders are going to step forward this week and say, I'm going to rule Steve's heart, or I'm going to rule whatever your name is, your heart. Paul says, strive to let the peace of Christ be the one that steps forward and gets to be your heart boss. That is your inner affection director. Let the reality that you have peace with God through Jesus Christ be something that keeps bringing your heart to a place of peace and rest. This is so beautifully illustrated in the story behind the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, written by a man called Horatio Spafford. Many of you will know this. He wrote the hymn after he had heard the news that his four daughters were drowned at sea. Heartbroken as he traveled on a ship to meet his wife, the only survivor out of the family who were on that voyage. It's said that on the boat passing over the area where his daughters drowned, he penned or penciled the hymn, when peace like a river attendeth my way. When sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, you have taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. There's a man battling to let the peace of Christ rule his heart. In the second part of verse 15, Paul seems to be thinking of how this peace 
is to shape our lives once again in the community of the local church. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. He seems to be saying you were called into peace with God and you were called into peace with others. Strive to be a person in your church who promotes peace, not one who creates problems and strife. This peace should be the governing principle that finds expression in the peace and unity of the church family. In Ephesians 4.3, Paul puts it like this, we should be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So we are to think of the peace we have with God through Christ, and we are to seek to have our lives shaped by that so that we are people who are peaceable. We seek to have peace in our relationships with others, not to be difficult creators of strife. So let me ask you again as we just press on, would you say you are a peaceable person? Perhaps you could pray this week that the peace of Christ would rule your heart and right-size all of those other contenders who are trying to step forward and govern the affections of your heart. In your church, at home, in the workplace, we are called to be peaceable. That does not mean we're doormats that people wipe their feet on, but we are promoters of peace. So you want to figure out how to live in the city of Colossae as Christians? You want to learn to live in the city of Belfast as Christians? Let the peace of Christ keep ruling your heart and shaping you into a peaceable person. And how much this city so broken by strife and conflict, needs to see in the local church an example of people who are from different backgrounds finding unity in Christ. And the peace of Christ brings peace between us all. Wouldn't that be amazing to see that here? Especially in the world of Catholics and Protestants being saved and united in Christ and saying, you know those political terms, Catholic and Protestant, they're subordinated because now we are one in Christ. Peace with God, peace with each other. What a witness that would be to this city. Well, third, if you want to know how to live in your city, Paul says, let the word of Christ shape you into a wise people. Notice in verse 16, Paul doesn't just say, let the word of Christ dwell in you. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. We can think of what he's calling the Colossians to here on both an individual and a corporate level. First on the individual level, let's think about it together. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. The word of Christ here means the word of the gospel that centers on Christ. It's the whole message of our faith. To dwell in you richly means let it go down deep so that you can savor the richness of what you have in the gospel. We don't want to stay on the level of superficiality. We want to go deep. On our holidays, um, recently we were eating out at a restaurant, and I had this burger, and I don't think I'll ever forget it. It, it was this lovely burger, and it had you know, a lovely big thick patty in it, and then these crispy onions on it, and then this pepper sauce. You don't usually get that with burgers, and I just poured it on, and I tell you, when I bit it, I was like, yes. 
This is good. And I savored every single bite. I actually ate it slowly because it was like, I don't want this to end. I'm telling you, that was rich food and it went down and was wonderful. It's kind of like Paul saying here, look, let the word of Christ be like that burger was to me. Let it go down deep. Enjoy it. Taste it. Savor it. Don't just nibble on the edges of the burger. Take a big bite and get all the goodness. Sorry for those that don't. Imagine it's a halloumi burger for those that are vegetarians. Do this with the word of Christ. And let me again ask you, would you say you're a person and the word of Christ dwells in you richly? Are you taking time to be like a cow chewing the cud? You take in the word and then through the day it just comes back up and you chew on it again, you think on it and then you just let it go down again for a while and then you just, at your moments of rest, boiling the kettle, making a cup of tea, doing the dishes, whatever it is, you just let it go back again through your heart and your mind. Do not set your things on things that are on earth. Set your mind on things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Just keep memorizing and turning it over and letting it dwell as you enjoy all the, the notes of the flavors of God's word individually. That's something we're called to enjoy. And oh, how you're missing out so much if you're staying in the shallows. But on the corporate level, which is what I think Paul has in view more here, he's saying in your local gathering of the church, make sure the word of Christ dwells among you richly. At my granny's, one of my great childhood memories, there was always tea and there was always homemade baked goods whether it was wheaten or scones or pancakes, and she had one of those old griddles, did the whole works. Every time, I just remember this as a child, you'd go in and you knew there would be tea and you knew there would be something really lovely to eat. Well, in the local church, we're to almost think we're coming back again to be together. There's always something set before us. There's always food of the word to eat. There's always the tea of the word to drink and enjoy. There's a warmth. There is a a sense that we're together. and, And at the center of it all is our enjoyment together of God's word. It shapes everything we do. It shapes the way we sing. It shapes the way we pray. It shapes even where we position the pulpit in the church. It shapes what we do. It's who we are. What does it look like practically to have the Word of God dwelling uh, at the midst of all we do? Well, first, this passage tells us we're called to minister the Word to each other. It's not just the pastor who ministers the Word. The Word is to dwell among us and make us all wise so that we're able to edify and build each other up. Paul calls us here to be teaching and admonishing one another. Now, that involves times where we'll positively instruct each other, we'll share what we've been seeing in the Word, what we've been enjoying. Also times where perhaps we'll take someone out for a coffee when we're a bit concerned about them and we'll say, look, I'm a wee bit concerned about this relationship or I'm a wee bit concerned about the direction this is moving in and I just want to talk with you as someone who loves you. And you hope that that person won't get defensive but that they'll be humble and realize that your move towards them comes out of love but this is stuff that should be going on in the local church. Teaching one another, building one another up, admonishing one another as we try to help each other walk in Christ. One of the places this really happens is in our small groups. 
And as we, in the end of September, prepare to start a new season of small group ministry, I would really encourage you, if you're not plugged into a small group, to, to think carefully about why not and, and to wonder if this is something that you could do uh, and get plugged into. But it happens in many other ways. And I love when I hear stories of this that filter through from the fellowship. People who go out with each other or go out for a coffee and just chat together about the Lord. Or sometimes someone has admonished someone and maybe it comes back in a certain way. And you just see that's health. That is good health in the local church when everyone's involved in being nourished by the word themselves so they grow wise in their handling of Scripture, and they're able to use that wisdom to edify and build up others in the fellowship. That is one of the ways the Word of God will dwell in us richly. But the second way is in celebrating that Word in corporate worship, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. This is just so wonderful. The Word and our truths that we delight in in Christ should find expression in good hymns. I think this passage teaches that we should sing a variety of types of song, but all with one thing in common. They're all centered on the rich truths of the Word of Christ. We don't want to sing fluffy rubbish at Great Vic. We want to sing deep doctrinal truth. It's not about, is it old? Is it new? It's about, is it good or bad? We want to sing rich, deep doctrinal truth continually with the congregation's voice always being the main instrument. So we sing Psalm 65. We sing Christ our hope in life and death. We sing crown him with many crowns. Our songs are a celebration of what we believe. And why do we sing it? Why do we not just speak it? Because singing expresses a depth of emotion that words spoken just do not convey. It's why the big chunky footballers at the back of the stands in the football match, they all start singing about their team because their singing expresses their emotional delight in their team and how we must not be outsung by the world because we have something far greater to sing about. So, this is another way that we encourage and edify one another with the Word. Paul writes in Ephesians 5.19 that we're to address one another as we sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So when the Word of God dwells in us richly, we will be building one another up and we will be rejoicing together in song. So make sure that you are someone who has the Word of God dwelling richly in you so that you have wisdom to give to the church family. So, how are we to live in our church family in a local city? Let the grace of Christ shape you into a gracious people. Let the peace of Christ shape you into a peaceable people. Let the word of Christ shape you into a wise people. And then finally, in verse 17, we conclude with this. And whatever you do in word or deed... Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. You want to know how to live? Strive to faithfully represent the Lord Jesus and the values of his kingdom in everything you do. By being patient, by being compassionate, by being loving this week amongst your family, your friends, and your workplace. Use your words in a way that honors Christ. Perhaps that's one of the ways we could, could sense most conviction. Sometimes our words can get away with us, get away from us. Let's make sure our words reflect the character of Christ. Our thoughts reflect 
the character of Christ. Let's do all that we do in the name of the Lord Jesus. Do you remember that, I don't know if some of you are old enough for this, there was a real fad a while back of the WWJD bracelets, what would Jesus do? And, and I had one, a nice purple one that I thought was cool. But I, I, I sort of thought, you know, you need to change it. I would prefer WDJD, what did Jesus do? I think that's, I know that's silly, like sort of pedantic about the words, but that's more biblical, like what did he do? And now let's try to do what he did. It's be like him in his character. And what's the manner we're to have, finally, as we do this? Well, you've probably seen that I've left this out so that we can close with this note. What is the manner we're to have as Christians as we seek to live faithfully in our city? Our manner is to continually be one of thankfulness. Did you notice how that's been saturating the last few verses? How are we to live, verse 15, and be thankful? Verse 16, we let the word dwell and we sing with thankfulness in our hearts to God. Verse 17, we do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. What is one of the defining characteristics of the city we're in today? There are lots of them, but one of the primary defining characteristics of people outside of the church in our city today is one of, that we could call self-centered entitlement. I am entitled to this. That is the culture that, that is all around us. We're all entitled. My rights, my way, my morality, no one can define my life but me, and I'm entitled to the sovereignty of the self. What ruins the culture of a church community seeking to embody the character of Christ? When that worldly attitude of self-centered, consumeristic entitlement infects the church. What's the remedy for this? Looking to Jesus, who did not give himself to entitlement, did not consider his equality with God something to be grasped, held onto. He didn't just say, well, I'm Jesus Christ. I'm in heaven being glorified. I'm not leaving that for anyone. No. He led it all down. He came to save us from sin. Ponder this, the humility of Christ the self-emptying love of Christ. Ponder this until your heart is moved to a place of gratefulness where thankfulness will be the dominant note in your life rather than a complaining spirit. Happiness doesn't make you grateful. Gratefulness makes you happy. Grateful people are content people, often gracious people, peaceable people, and they're that way because they realize how much they have to be thankful for. I often say to our kids, let's be thankful for what we do have rather than grumbling about what we don't have. And this attitude, I think, would go a long way to fostering a beautiful Christ-centered community here at Great Vic and in any local church. So we are called as people who are Christians in the city center to put on the Lord Jesus Christ, to make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires, let me encourage you, Great Vic, this week. Strive to put on Christ, to practice Christ-like living. This is the functional centrality of the gospel. Gracious as we've received grace, peaceable as we've received peace, word-centered and wise as we've been taught, abounding with thanksgiving. And as we pray now and 
move to share the Lord's Supper together, the, this is the place where we express our thanksgiving most clearly for all that God has done for us. So let me pray, and then we're going to sing. If you haven't, if you're sharing communion, you haven't received a cup and a little bit of bread, just go to the back during the hymn, and you'll be able to collect that, and then we'll be ready to give thanks together for all that we have received in Christ. But first, let me pray, and then we'll sing together and prepare our hearts and minds to respond around the Lord's table. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word this morning. Thank you for this calling to put on compassionate hearts and kindness and humility, meekness and patience, to put on peace, to let that word dwell in us richly, and to be a people abounding with thanksgiving. Lord, there have been lots of different instructions here this morning, but we pray that what would pull them all together is that lovely conclusion. As we go into this week, whatever we do in our word and deed, may we do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus as his representatives, thinking, how can we display Christ, giving thanks to God the Father, to you, our Father, through him. And as we gather now around the Lord's table, for those of us sharing in it as Christians, we just pray that you would nourish us spiritually and feed us spiritually on the risen Lord and all he has accomplished for us. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as we turn our thoughts to responding around the Lord's table, let's stand together and we'll sing the first couple of verses of Behold the Lamb, this lovely communion hymn.
On the night Jesus was betrayed, he instituted a meal of remembrance for his people that they might remember his death.